is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream With Mind and Heart. I'm Ryan Silberstein and with me is Megan Blajarski. Hello everybody. We're your hosts through this chronological tour of every Disney movie ever. In this episode, we embark on our first true life adventure. That's capital T, capital L, capital A. <laughs> as we go into the living desert. Capital T, capital L, capital D. Yeah, correct. Yes, that is the <laughs> title of the film, The Living Desert. True life adventures, for those who are not aware, is the original name for what is sort of now Disney nature because they have been doing those. They've been releasing like nature documentaries on Earth Day for quite a while since the acquisition of Fox, which included National Geographic. I don't know what's going on with <laughs> Disney, but suffice it to say, if if you ever saw the like trailer for, I think they did a chimpanzee one, they did a bears one. For a little while there, they were doing a new full-length feature nature documentary focused around a specific animal. It would come out on Earth Day. But if you saw those previews and were like, why is Disney making nature documentaries? The Living Desert is the answer to that question. <laughs> I do remember when I was in middle school, we went to the Mall of Georgia as a school assignment, which is always fun to go to a mall. And the technical reason or the reason that the teachers told the school i suppose is that we were going to watch one of the disney nature documentaries and learn about you know biology and the world and i've definitely have seen some differences from how it was 10 years ago to how it was when it started out with the true life adventures definitely some pretty big shifts between the two just to give a quick just a quick overview of the series. This is actually the eighth entry in the series so far. The others being uh, two real shorts of the first seven, which are roughly half an hour. So there was On Seal Island in Beaver Valley, Nature's Half Acre, The Olympic Elk, Waterbirds, Bear Country, uh, Prowlers of the Everglades, which was uh, released with The Sword and the Rose, uh, which I did watch for that episode. The Living Desert being the eighth entry. And then from there on, they are feature length. Uh, there's 14 entries in the series as a whole. That It runs through On Seal Island, was released in December of 1948. Jungle Cat, which is the last one, came out in August 1960. So it wasn't like a long, long running series, but it was actually very successful. The series won eight Academy Awards, including five for the best two real live action shorts, because we had enough short films back then where we could have multiple, multiple Oscar categories for them. <laughs> and three Academy Awards for best documentary feature, including The Living Desert that we're talking about today. So this is kind of a like 
it's weird having watched the movie and like knowing the reputation of like nature documentaries as a whole, but I think in part putting ourselves in the mindset of what it would have been like to watch these things, especially in the early to mid 1950s, TVs are are starting to be in more and more homes, of course, but they're not in color. And this sort of invented the genre of nature documentary, this this series. And I think watching those more recent Disney nature documentaries, watching things like Planet Earth, like that is this. <laughs> like that's where all this all this comes from, where we're adding like a sense of narrative onto footage of animals in nature. And there's definitely some problematic elements that we will talk about in Disney's approach. But in terms of filmmaking and the way that these things are presented to the public, where we're basically turning animals into characters, you know, we're not necessarily giving them names or, or like backstories. But when you hear David Attenborough be like, you know, now like now we're following the elk as it as it crosses the tundra and like you know that narrative based voiceover over animal like that it all comes from this this series, which is kind of incredible. So basically, what I'm hearing is Disney invented the cat video and all of the shows we have now of like voices put to animals to like tell their life stories in the wild. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, then, you know, I I know that it's something that we're going to talk about a lot. And if there's any way to kind of describe our third season so far, it's basically the solidification of trends for Disney. You know, we have the introduction of the live actions. We have the creation or solidification to to use the word again of the disney style for the animated films and then the introduction of these documentaries so we've kind of got these three parallel lines going but it's a little bit weird because they're so completely different it's it's hard to kind of view them all as the same thing i feel like you could have a podcast on the live action and a podcast on the documentaries and a podcast on the animation that never needed to reference each other. And mm-hmm. yet there's little crossovers that we can see here and there. I think that this movie in particular, the music, I see a lot of really like 30s era animal cartoon music mm-hmm. and shenanigans kind of vibes. It's much less strictly narrative and more just like hey look at this funny thing going on let's spend three minutes of fart jokes with you know bubbling mud it it all definitely has kind of an animated vibe to the music and yet you know as you were saying so many of the ideas of this narrative over the footage and even just the close-up footage of these animals and a lot of bugs a lot of bugs um, a lot of bugs Fair warning, if you haven't watched it and you want to after this, if you're the kind of person who, like, sees a bug and then just, like, starts feeling itchy, this movie will will activate that. Because it did for me. But, you know, all of these elements were so new and kind of groundbreaking, and yet you can definitely see at least a few ties to some of the other things they were working on around this point and 
you know, going back to the beginning. Yeah, I was really waiting for a, a group of different kinds of bugs teaming up to fend off some grasshoppers <laughs> by the time we got deep in this movie. Yeah, because I A Bug's Life just popped in my head as like an alternate title for this. And I, mm -hmm. I could not resist because I actually think that movie is great and often overlooked in the, the larger Pixar filmography. <laughs> but actually, I want to jump ahead for a second because... I think those little ties are really interesting. And I think part of what's going on with Disney and will continue to go on with Disney as a company over the next decade as we ramp, or actually over the next couple of years, as we ramp up to Disneyland is sort of, you know, what you're, what you're talking about where this, there's this like diversification all of a sudden where we're doing animated stuff. Now we're going to start doing live action stuff in part because we have this money sitting in England that we have to spend in England and it's easier to start up live action film production. So we're going to do that. We're going to do these nature documentaries and then we're going to do television and we're going to do theme parks. And I think what's really interesting about all of this, the live action stuff, seemingly the least, but all of them have people that cross over. So like watching the opening credits for this, I recognized James Alger. I recognized Ted Sears, you know, they, along with Winston Hibbler and Jack Moffat, uh, who were who was uncredited wrote all the uh, wrote this movie you know they wrote it around the documentary footage that was pre-existing which we'll talk about auger is also credited as the director and james auger was responsible for the sorcerer's apprentice sequence of fantasia which was the genesis of that whole project ted sears was the first ever head of the story department that they put together to make three little pigs so these are guys who have gone have been with disney for a very very long time and as we get into next season early next year and we talk about disneyland we will also see a bunch of those names like people mm -hmm. like mark davis and mary blair who and also end up being somewhat involved on the theme park side and so it, i do think it's really interesting that like the in in a weird way the like live action you know the most traditional live action movies that Disney is making is like the one part so far that is like removed from everything else in part, you know, because it's in England and, you know, we just mm -hmm. don't see as much crossover except for Bobby Driscoll, you know, getting fined by the British government. <laughs> A lot. <laughs> yeah. I also, I always just like looking at the credits at this point, which, you know, I know we should do with all movies because there are so many people who do deserve the credit, but it is a lot of fun with these Disney movies as you know, we go along with the podcast because I am getting so familiar with these names. I noticed uh, Of Iwerks is credited mm. on this film, which is as, as far back as you can go with Disney, really. He's doing special effects at this point. I'm not sure what special effects were in this movie exactly, but they are credited. I do know that, actually. He was actually the guy for integrating the live action with the animation. So I have a feeling that he was responsible for all the like intro animation and the paintbrush over the real pictures and stuff like that. Cause he was really instrumental in working on that for song of the South mm -hmm. and so dear to my heart as well. And so I think that's where he ends up sort of being his niche right now is like doing that sort of putting animation with the live action footage. Okay. I could definitely see that. And I I know it's not anything groundbreaking at this point. Like, they'd been doing it for a while, and especially with, like, the paintbrush painting the scene is is nothing new. 
but I do enjoy it. It's mm-hmm. it's one of my favorite ways of blending the animation and the live action. And I actually think it would be a really cool thing. And maybe they have. I I don't remember. I think it would be a cool way to kind of lead into the live action remakes of like these classic movies. If we started with like them flipping through a book in the animated world and then it shows the real world or something like that. I think that could be a cool way to blend it just like they did with like Mickey Mouse running in and out of the movie theater screen. Mm-hmm. I- I'd like to see some more of that hybrid animation live action. I think it could be a cool way to honor the classics and the new versions. Right. And, it- and instead we just get CGI animals that are that and we're told it's it's a live action film. <laughs> totally live action. That's that's what all lions look like, as we all know. And apparently, great actors. Oh, absolutely. And and singers, apparently. I mean, Beyonce can't hold a candle to Nala. Oh, wait. Anyway, yeah, so talking about live action, we've got obviously some real live action going on here. Although there is some controversy we'll talk about about how real this footage is. That's especially relevant, and I'll talk about this more later, but... I had actually read about this movie and this series a little while ago because I was watching The Lincoln Lawyer. This is such a a weird segue, but it does connect, I promise. One of the episode titles is like 12 Lemmings in a Box. And the idea is that you want people who will go where they're led. And so I was looking up like how the lemming got connected with this because I like learning linguistic stuff. Uh, And it all goes back to one of the true life adventures where Disney faked the idea that lemmings do mass suicides. And that's just like a common understanding in in society now. And all of our understandings of lemmings go back to Disney wanting to, to make a nature documentary more exciting than it was. So there's there's definitely some weird questions of how how accurate these movies really are. Yeah, and we will actually be talking about that movie is uh, the white is White Wilderness, which we will be talking about in season five, early in season five. So it, we'll come back to Lemmings for sure. But yeah, no, that they do sort of now have a more notorious reputation than I think at the time. And if you really wanted to be like very critical of it, you could say that the True Life Adventures had. No truth, a little bit of life, and little adventure. <laughs> Ouch. Did you just come up with that one, or did you read that somewhere? Because it's a great line. Oh, I that I actually just came up with that off the top of my head. It just Bravo. popped in there. <laughs> for for all of its faults, uh, I will say, I actually, I enjoyed watching this movie. I think half as, like, 50% being really impressed by the footage like and like the clarity of it like watching it on Disney Plus I think it it looks really good like the amount of like close animal footage I think is actually again staged quote unquote or not is still very impressive in terms of the actual like quality and like fidelity of the images being presented and I think the rest of my entertainment was just seeing how like I guess I'm going to say like 50% how good it looked 35% like watching it as like, oh, this is interesting to see like where these sort of like nature documentary tropes like kind of start to originate. 
and then the rest being like amused at how ridiculous some of the stuff they're presenting in this and like the way like the way that they're choosing to present these animals just i've i just found it very like it's very disney which which feels weird to say because you know this is not something we think of when we think of disney but I, I don't know. I will take the image of two scorpions doing square dancing, like, to my grave. <laughs> I mean, it's not a bad editing job. I took a class that was talking about, you know, building story for film and television. And we spent a week on documentaries and talked about the fact that, generally speaking, when we think about traditional movies, like the director is very involved with planning beforehand and during the filming. Whereas with the documentary, the director is really more about, like, editing what comes into it. Mm -hmm. And seeing, you know, a scorpion mating ritual and going, let's make that square dancing, is admittedly a very original way to interpret it. I don't quite know how I feel about this movie. I'll say I definitely didn't enjoy it as much as I had hoped I might. But I'm also not a big documentary person in general. But then when I tried to essentially watch it while working on something else, I found that I couldn't. It, like, I, I did want to see what was going on. And mm -hmm. I think that what it comes down to for me, and I'm going to give another weird tangent metaphor here. So I don't know about you, Ryan, but when I was growing up, when you took children's medication, it was always cherry or grape flavored. And it was this very strong... The cherry burned. Yep. The grape didn't burn as much, but it was just a very kind of visceral flavor. And so to this day, I don't like cherry and grape candy because it's a very similar like taste to it. And I think that for me, boring documentaries have such a similar voiceover to the documentary <laughs> here. And I'm not saying that the, you know, voiceover work was bad. But I think I was so trained by bad documentaries that this tone of voiceover is boring. That, like, I, I almost would have been better off watching without sound to just be able to, like, enjoy the footage. Because there were some really interesting things there. And I think that a lot of that really goes back to how this idea came about. I think a lot of that just really comes down to how this kind of came about. So... Kind of two things going on here. One thing that you kind of find in the research is that Walt generally loved the desert. Not as much as Marceline, Missouri, of course, because, you know, that is the heart of America and nostalgia at its core and everything wonderful and beautiful in the world. But he, he didn't really love the cities in California. He much preferred kind of getting out. And so he actually spent a decent amount of time in the desert. So there is... To some extent, our our classic, is it a Walt picture or not? There was mm -hmm. definitely, Walt had a desire for it. And then Walt was directly kind of connected with getting it from its source material to what it eventually became. So essentially going from the Library of Congress documents and the Walt Disney and American Original book, what we know is that a doctoral student at UCLA named N. Paul Kenworthy basically filmed 10 minutes of bug footage for his thesis work, I believe. 
so he specifically had a, quote, battle between a tarantula and a wasp that intrigued Disney. And basically, he just made this, and it got put out there a little bit. I think one of the things I had read was that his advisor had sent it to Disney, but I could be wrong on that one. And Disney found it, and his quote is, This is where we can tell a real, sustained story for the first time in these nature pictures. So like we said, the True Life Adventures had been going for a while, but this one seems to be one of the first super strong Walt projects. He had been very invested in the seals, Seal Island, I believe, but this one was one that he really felt could be made into a feature-length film because the drama of the wasp and the tarantula he saw as something with kind of this narrative presence. And that led him to buy this original footage. I believe that actually messed with Kenworthy's doctoral work. I think he had to make another short film because technically he didn't own this anymore. It was something like that. Or like his advisors couldn't watch the video because technically it was Disney corporate property. Something like that. But he bought that film and then he brought Kenworthy in to continue some of this filming. So he essentially said, make it longer. They made it 30 minutes. Walt looked at it and said, yeah, double that. We, we can make it work. And that kind of created this whole idea. So it's the living desert, mostly because they needed to throw other things in there to fill the other 39 minutes or whatever. It was all kind of inspired by the drama of this fight for survival between the wasp and the tarantula. Yeah, and it's really interesting because I, you know, as typical, I watched this movie and then was starting to get into reading up on it and, and note-taking and things. And, like, I get it, but that was not one of the pieces of footage that I was like, oh, I can see why they made this. You know, mm -hmm. compared to, like, the emergence of the bats or... And it also, like, I'm not a bug person. Um, <laughs> like... Bugs when I'm outside don't bother me per se, so I can watch them in, in this context and, and be perfectly fine. And so the it, yeah, I'm just not captivated by like wasps and ants and tarantulas and things. But the snake footage here I think is really good. You know, but it's just interesting that like that was the thing that like spawned this whole this whole particular project was that tarantula wasp battle which catching it on film like that is is kind of remarkable given the size of the animals and the size of the cameras that they would have had to been using at the time so like i again intellectually i do understand it and i like that this guy was like i'm going to show this to disney and then disney buys it and then he's like well now i have to do something else for my like doctoral thesis because now disney owns that and i can't show it also he's sending me back out into the desert for three months to film additional footage but yeah, no, I, th I think the footage is really good. And uh, it was funny watching this because I, uh, my wife and I actually took a trip out to the Southwest earlier this year. I had never been out to like New Mexico, Arizona. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a brief clip of Monument Valley in this and the Painted Desert and some petrified wood, which were all things I saw on my vacation. I did not see a lot of living animals because you have to get up either really early in the morning or be out really late at night. And so I did not see a, a roadrunner. 
in person. I think we saw maybe a couple of like tiny lizards, but and oh, and one jackrabbit. But uh, we were for a day in Tucson, Arizona, and like we visited uh, Sierra National Park and saw you know the giant cacti and at least woodpecker holes, even though we didn't see any actual woodpeckers and stuff. So it was kind of it was kind of nice watching this and like just remembering some of the really nice pictures I took from my vacation. Mm-hmm. And so it does also work on on that level. But you know, it really I think it comes together. And I, I and I think like any nature documentary, you know, like you said, the the process is like we're going to gather this footage, and like that's kind of impressive just because like again the patience, the luck, mm-hmm. especially at this time lugging that equipment all around the desert doesn't sound like my idea of a good time. And then taking 200,000 feet of film and then editing that, finding music to go with it, mm-hmm. you know, and then adding narration on it and turning it into something that is is very watchable. You know, I, I think it's really impressive, even if the total end point of that product that I watch and I'm like, yeah, that was a pretty all right, you know, hour, 20 <laughs> minutes or whatever. Like, it's not like I didn't enjoy watching it. And nature documentaries are not something that I often like go back to usually like I watch it once and I'm like that was a great episode of planet earth when that was like all the rage 15 Mm -hmm. years ago but I think it I think it's interesting that when we get you know like I said being able to watch this kind of footage in color was really remarkable for the time Mm -hmm. because we're moving away from newsreels again we don't have color television yet we don't have high definition television yet so like seeing this amazing footage of these animals, like unless you went to a zoo and you happen to see some of these animals, like I think that that sort of curiosity is a draw. And I think it's interesting the ways that they sort of tried to modulate the Disney. Like you can tell that they were worried about doing this as a full length feature, Mm -hmm. not unlike Snow White in a way. But like we said, with the the square dancing scorpions and the other music and even the, yeah, like the, the bubbling mud, which reminded me very much of the Rite of Spring part of Fantasia, where it's like a little abstract almost. But you can tell they were like, we need to keep the audience engaged at all time. We have to make this like fun and interesting. We can't lose like kids. It's kind of what it feels like. One of the downfalls of it to me is that there wasn't necessarily great stakes because... On the one hand, it's fantastic stakes. There's a bunch of life and death. But then at other points, they have animals eating other animals as jokes. So it's like, okay, I'm supposed to really fear for this little mouse that's trying to escape the snake. And, And I did like the, you know, mouse running into the hole, snake going into the hole, and just being kind of caught by the tarantula. Like, there were some good moments there. But then a few minutes later, we see a frog eat like seven bugs the same size. So I'm I'm not sure you root for the character until you don't root for the character, I guess. I, I wish there had been a bit more of a through line there. I, I suppose I'll I'll answer my own question and then I'll I'll pose it to you. So my my question, I guess, broadly was if you don't think that the wasp and the tarantula was like the most kind of profound telling thing here. My my two kind of questions are, what scene does stand out to you most, and what feels most Disney to you? The thing that feels most Disney to me is honestly, like, the tone of the narration overall. 
Like mm-hmm. it very much reminded me of I, I forget the the actor that they had, but the live act it most reminded me of the tone of the live action parts of Fantasia, where they're like, you know, this is the orchestra and this is the soundtrack, and what you're about to hear is from this, you know, obscure Russian composer Tchaikovsky. I could see that. And and that that mix of like, you know, we're clearly having fun and being lighthearted, but we're we're, you know, delivering this information, which is also Secretly, that's what this podcast is. Uh-huh. And so that the overall tone of it, you know, combined with the matching of the action on screen to the music, I think those were the two things that felt most Disney-like to me. And then the footage that actually stood out to me the most was the hawk trying to eat the bats, because I don't think I've ever seen that. Like, I actually don't think I've ever seen anything like that. I did not even know that hawks wanted to eat bats. In, in my, in my, you know, my, my still like very childlike understanding about how nature works, you know, to me, the hawks are like asleep in their nests by the time the bats are coming out. So yeah. like, I did not realize that those were animals that cross paths. And then like seeing the hawk and like the narration is, is, is cutesy, of course, but like seeing the hawk actually have difficulty, like hunting the bats was really interesting. And, you know, I didn't even really think about why until you know, the narrator is like, well, you know, the hawk doesn't know that bats essentially have radar. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, that would actually be, like, make it really tough. So so that's that's the thing that jumped out the most to me. Again, beyond the aforementioned square dancing scorpions, which, like, the next time I'm at a party and somebody, like, has access to Disney+, Plus, I'm like, you guys have to watch this because you're not going to believe it. <laughs> I need to host a square dancing night and just have that, like, on a loop projected on the wall. Okay, everyone, if you don't know what you're doing, watch the scorpions. In uh, obscure Halloween costumes, square dancing scorpions would be a great one. So if, if. Okay, you know, I have not chosen my Halloween costume yet. I might be able to make that happen. It would be ridiculous, but if I do it, I promise I will post pictures on uh, our social media. But don't That's get your I hopes ask. up. Um, <laughs> so answering my own questions. Similarly, kind of to you with the bats, I think we both kind of fell into the David and Goliath episodes of this in that, like, a hawk should beat a bat. Like, Mm -hmm. it should. But it it was obviously really struggling there because there were just so many bats to to do what they were doing. For me, what stood out most was not the wasp's fight with the tarantula, but the wasp's fight with the ants. Oh, and yeah, having was, hundreds cool. of ants cling to your legs and, like, keep you from flying is kind of terrifying. Very cool. Very kind of interesting to watch. But, like, it's kind of like the horror of, like, Hitchcock's the birds in a weird way. Like, there's so many that even though they might not be a threat to you on their own, when they all get together with malicious intent, they... they are surprisingly effective. It really makes you rethink the whole like horse-sized duck ducks versus duck-sized horse question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially depending on how many what kind of numbers we have going there. I I have never been a huge fan of like Ant-Man and the Atom and and other shrinking super uh humans, but you know, maybe maybe they have it figured out because I mean, as as much as some of the stuff in the Ant-Man movies are completely ridiculous, 
being tiny and swarming people with massive numbers, as shown here, is a very effective strategy. Yeah, and I think some of the best, most fun stuff in that movie, especially the first movie, I think, is some of the stuff that they do with the with the different kinds of, of ants. But I just personally think often Ant-Man ends up being the guy who shrinks and they forget about the whole, like, he can talk to ants thing. Yes, that's a huge thing. And I still think that the only time that people really get that is there's a great... We're going to go off topic because that's apparently what we do here now. There's a great Spider-Man panel where Spider-Man is, like, trying to stop a criminal and they're like, yeah, you don't scare me. And so he just, like, stops and put his puts his fingers to his temples. And the guy's like, what are you doing? And he's like, well, you know how Ant-Man can talk to ants? I'm Spider-Man. I'm calling the spiders. And that's just the most terrifying thing ever. And this guy is, like, giant... This guy's, like, super-powered guy with, like, the spidey sense and web shooters, nothing. Somebody who can summon bugs to do his whims, terrifying. So I definitely think all of that has its root in this documentary and the taking down, at least temporarily, of the wasp by the ant. I will say, in in the Spider-Verse comics, there is an alternate version of... Uh, spider-man that is like a thousand spot spiders in a spider-man costume well, of course that that i think like i think the backstory is that they ate that universe's peter parker and so like <laughs> so that it's like a hive mind thing like i this is one of those things where like i think they're in like one or two panels of like mm-hmm. a entire multi-arc crossover and yet sometimes that's all i can think about but yeah, tangents are what we do now. But yeah, I, I do think that this does a good job telling each of these sort of like almost like micro stories. Like I don't think any mm-hmm. of the segments in this are longer than certainly shorter than 10 minutes. Probably most of them closer to five or shorter. But I think they do a good job of being like, here's this cool footage. We're going to give you a little bit of a story, maybe some music. You know, we're going to tell you where roughly where this is taking place. We're going to show you... Some really, like I said, some really good close-up footage of animals. I'm just thinking about like how loud film cameras are, mm-hmm. and like it, it's just again, like I, I think it's so easy for us to like picture people out like shooting the, you know, like if Disney was making these today in some way, they could be like this could be their like shot on iPhone because it would be so easy to just put an iPhone on a on on like a tripod or a gimbal and just get some really great nature footage that probably looks almost as good as this, but doesn't have that sort of film quality. But just thinking about like, again, them like hauling all this equipment out, like carrying reels of film into the desert and things. I mean, they probably drove through most of it because, Mm -hmm. you know, we weren't so conservation oriented at at this time. But yeah, I think it's a really interesting project, but it, it was one that was met with a lot of skepticism. You know, we spent a lot of time at the very beginning of the show talking about Snow White and how, you know, it was Disney's folly and people's eyes were going to melt out of their heads because of the intense (laughs) color of watching a full-length animated film. And yet, the tension that had been brewing between RKO and Disney, RKO being the distributor of their movies, really came to a head uh, over the the living desert. They refused to distribute a fully non-fiction film for Disney. They didn't think it was going to make money. They really just 
sort of came to blows. And this is when we see eventually what happens. Of course, Disney becomes their own distributor. But this was really sort of where the Disney RKO relationship is really kind of on the outs at this point. In addition, you know, this was another way to potentially promote the Disneyland TV show uh, that premiered two weeks earlier. We are going to talk about the Disneyland TV show as our first episode of the new year. We're going to kick off our sort of our next season talking about the Disneyland show. It's come up a few times. You know, just to give you a sense of chronology, it debuts between the release of The Sword and the Rose uh, and The Living Desert. This had this, its New York premiere on November 9th, 1953. Uh, it was aired alongside Short's Ben and Me, which is about a mouse who befriends Benjamin Franklin, and Stormy the Thoroughbred, which I did not look up, but I assume is about a horse. And so you had this like Disney, probably close to a full two hour package, because Ben and Me is 22 minutes, which is one of the reasons we didn't cover it for our. 1950s shorts episode, but it, it did win the Academy Award for animated short uh, this year. So you had in a single package two Oscar-winning films put together by Disney, which I think is an interesting mark of quality on its own. The LA premiere was in December of 1953 and was a benefit for uh, the John Tracy Clinic, which was a school for the deaf and hard of hearing children. Walt was a board member, so that's the connection there. Contemporary reviews of the time seem pretty mixed overall, according to Leonard Maltin in his book. That's like his take on the overall. But, you know, we do have our old friend Bosley Crowther of The New York Times, who said, quote, The whole film is frankly intended to show the violent and dramatic ebb and flow of life in a waste of sand and cacti, and that it decidedly does. On a less positive note, he also said, quote, Mr. Disney and his writers and editors are inclined to do with nature pictures pretty much what they have always done with cartoons. And so he kind of goes back and forth, sort of saying the footage that they have is really good and really interesting. However, when you put it all together as a feature film, it's a bit repetitive. And I can understand that if he's like a wasp again, a tarantula again. <laughs> and so I think that is an interesting thing as well. And then also the, the main point of contention uh, when this movie was released was how Disney it was. And according to Leonard Malton, they actually took that criticism to heart. And so this is the most sort of like having square dancing scorpions and waltzing tarantulas and bubbling mud thing. Like they sort of toned down the like comedy elements of the True Life Adventures because they realized that the audience was just eager to see the footage and, and learn about things. And that alone was interesting enough to carry a feature length film. In its release, it only cost $300,000 to make. D23 says $500,000, but either way, it made $4 million, which is a huge profit margin for Disney. And it was also weirdly popular in Japan. It earned more money than Gone with the Wind in Japan when it was released, which is also impressive because Gone with the Wind was also very popular in Japan. So that's not like a random uh, movie that they just pulled out. Like, they were like, it's even more popular than Gone with the Wind in Japan for some reason. I do wonder if part of that is because they didn't have the problem of the overly Disney humor. That maybe, mm. you know, cultural differences were strong enough that it was either not funny to them or funny to them in a more original way. Instead of kind of feeling like the cartoons of the 20s and the 30s, like I had said, in America. It is kind of an interesting through line along with what we said in our last episode about the Sword and the Rose 
being advertised with the alligators and crocodiles from the uh, true life adventure of that one. So it's it's definitely an interesting thing to see how Japan was responding to all of this at this point in time. Yeah, and, and you know, obviously this is post-World War II, so there's a lot of, like, American cultural as well as literal imperialism going on in Japan at this time. There's still a lot of Americans in Japan at this time as well. Cause I, and and the, the alligator one that was shown along with the sword and the rose was also very popular in Japan. And these are also animals they don't have in Japan, so that could, like that could also be part of it. It, it is very interesting. Uh, the other thing is that you know I mentioned before this one best documentary feature. This actually set the record. Walt set a record for winning the most number of Oscars by a single person in a given year, because he won best documentary feature for this movie, best documentary short subject for the Alaskan Eskimo. Oh, that's Disney's People and Places series, mm. as opposed to True Life Adventures. There's all kinds of Disney stuff, like I said, that I don't even know about <laughs> until doing this podcast. He also won Best Live Action Short for uh, Two Real, which again is the, the longer short. Uh, that was for Bear Country, which was a True Life Adventure. And then also won Best Short Subject Cartoons for Toot, Whistle, Plunk, and Boom, which again, we talked about in our 1950s shorts episode. That record actually stood. It tech well, it technically still stands. He is he was tied by Bong Joon Ho at the um, the 2020 Oscars. So the the Parasite year, Bong Joon Ho winning for picture, original screenplay, director, and international feature film. And so you know, in a class of their own, Walt Disney and Bong Joon Ho, two names I never thought would be connected in any way whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, it's insanely impressive that it took that amount of time for somebody to even tie it. To be fair, we didn't see all that many of people who were starring and directing and writing until very recently, which gives more opportunities for these multiple Oscars in a year. It, I mean, it really is very impressive. Again, looking to this movie, in addition to winning the Oscar... It won the International Prize at the 1954 Cannes Film Festival. It won an award at the Berlin Film Festival. And it won a Special Achievement Award from the Golden Globes. So, Walt was doing well this year. This movie was doing very well this year. And it, you know, really kind of tells them, both through the money and through the critical acclaim, which again... They hadn't really had both money and critical acclaim on the same project, really, since mm -hmm. we're talking the first five features. Certainly not much, both critical and popular acclaim. And this pushed Disney to kind of the most obvious legacy of this film that he went on to do, you know, five more feature-length true-life adventures and all of the nature documentaries to this day that we've talked about. So it, it ends up kind of building this, this tiny little documentary. It's 69 minutes, I believe. I don't know that it was, you know, amazing, but I've also been able to benefit from the last 50-plus years of improvements on the nature documentary style. As we've talked through, I think my biggest problem with this is just I was very ready for the package films to be over, and this is kind of just a live-action nature documentary package film. 
that's neither here nor there. But it, it definitely, I just don't think there's any denying that this was probably one of the biggest successes of the decade until, of course, Disneyland becomes, well, Disneyland. And kind of going down uh, that path even further, you know, as we're going to start talking about how true this true life adventure was, all of the uh, animals and reptiles uh, featured in the film were donated to the Arizona Desert Trailside Museum in December of 1952. That museum is now actually called the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, I, we, I drove by the entrance, uh, which is actually right outside of Sierra National Park. We just didn't have time to do like this museum is huge and it's like an all day thing mm-hmm. and features all kinds of animals from the deserts of the Southwest. It it was like the number one rated thing to do in Tucson on, on TripAdvisor. So if we'd had more time, I would have gone to the museum. And if I had known I was going to be talking about this museum this year, then maybe <laughs> I would have made, made us have a little bit more time in Tucson on that trip. But, you know, as my parents would say, whenever I wanted to do something on vacation that we weren't going to do, something to come back for. <laughs> and so like we said, like this is instigating the nature documentary genre according to the walt disney family museum uh, in 1955 the christian herald selected the living desert and the vanishing prairie which we will talk about later this season due to their adherence to christian concepts and the hand of the creator in nature even though god is not explicitly referenced in any way which i think is is interesting and i'm gonna not get on any sort of religious soapbox and just say it's an interesting choice I think it's definitely interesting because, as we've said a few times, there are overtly religious films coming out in this time period from Disney. We have had, you know, the giant cross in the sky and these very fundamentally, like, Christ is here kind of stories. I also find it funny because if you take this out of the, like, this is a nature documentary, and we're going to speak in a nature documentary voice. If you take that out of it, the entire movie is about sex and death. That's, that's like, 85% of what's shown on screen. But, but yes, <laughs> uh, those, those good old uh, adherence to Christian concepts is, is certainly an interesting way to, to respond to that. <laughs> I'm just going to assume that all the all the animals were married at the time that their mating ritual mating rituals were taking place. There did seem to be the defense of traditional marriage going on in this movie. To be fair, they did show multiple times that you know there was a connected couple that probably weren't, um, and and you know the the men had to fight over the women to to have true love win out, which was. In an odd way to set up fights between turtles and bugs and such. Speaking of traditional marriage, Megan, do you want to share with the audience what this week's code word is? I think that's a that's a beautiful, wonderful transition. <laughs> For those of you who have been listening to our podcast or following us on social media, we are doing many, many giveaways this season. One of those giveaways is our special code words. So in this and one other episode this season, we're not going to tell you which one, you just got to listen. We are giving out code words. You can email this to us. You can send it to us on Twitter 
And from the people who send it, we will choose somebody to get something Disney swag. We've got some shirts, some Funko Pops, some other ideas we're tossing around. So if you would like to get some fun Disney swag, all you have to do is send us the word. And the word in this instance is our good old friend and the reason this movie exists, Mrs. Tarantula. Because they needed to really tell us that this tarantula was married and that she was doing her her wifely duties. Just to quickly quote it for those of you who aren't watching it along with us, we're told, at the residence of Mrs. Tarantula, it's always open house. She's forever cleaning her parlor for guests that might drop by for dinner. We, we do know about those important traditional marriage values and, and Christian values that are, are clearly very well depicted by Mrs. Tarantula, who just wants to kill and eat things and eventually ends up getting killed and eaten herself. Because of the time period, like this being the, the early 50s and her being Mrs. Tarantula and it talking about her like homemaking skills, essentially, I immediately just imagine the like sitcom plot of like Mr. Tarantula's boss is coming over for dinner. <laughs> A thing I thought would happen way more in my life than has ever happened, which is zero times. <laughs> yeah, so so instead of WandaVision episode one, you want the Tarantulas episode one. Just, uh, sure. yeah. you know, honey, my boss is coming home and she's just, she's desperate to bring home dinner, whether that's a mouse or a snake or some other kind of bug. Well, she had to switch to snake because she, she burnt the mouse. But, but the plot twist is that you think this is a classic 50 sitcom plot twist. She's actually being paralyzed by the boss and then has eggs implanted inside of her to then devour her. So it, it very quickly turns into an alien horror movie instead of our classic 50 sitcom. Honestly would watch. Like, I, I think this is a great pitch. So... <laughs> We are open to licensing discussions. <laughs> Disney, you keep putting out these live-action remakes that people don't need. What we really need is the live-action remake of Mrs. Tarantula. <laughs> it is as, as this movie tells it, because this is the narrative that this documentary is spinning. That, you know, she's just trying to keep her house clean and get dinner prepared and ends up being kind of turned into a host body for parasites. And and really, I think that's what Disney fans have been asking for all along. In, in further legacies of, of this movie, because there's no way I can follow that up, <laughs> there's, there was a True Life Adventures comic strip, which ran from 1955 until 1973. The Living Desert is also one of four True Life Adventures films to influence the mine train through nature's wonderland which was a an, a train in disneyland which as you'll see when we get to that episode is not a rare thing indeed <laughs> but it was a uh part of frontierland where you rode through different scenes of the west that was in disneyland from 1956 through 1977 and then the, it got sort of reimagined as uh the roller coaster big thunder mountain railroad which is Probably one of my favorite Disney rides ever. And so it's kind of nice thinking about that connection. 
the Arizona Sonoma Museum uh, also added a three-mile hiking trail and nature preserve, which they named the Living Desert in honor of this movie uh, back in 1970. In 1975, Disney put out a best of compilation for the true life adventure series which was a full-length documentary derived from 13 of the uh, features and shorts of the true life adventures series which we will eventually get to talking about at some point you know the copyright for this was renewed in may of 1981 it was released on video in 1986 and then 1993 i'm imagining that like the two main markets for this were like hardcore disney adults or whatever we call disney adults in 1993 and schools like i just have to imagine that like i'm already picturing a teacher rolling a television in on a cart and being like all right kids today we're learning about the desert and in the year 2000 uh the living desert was selected for preservation in the united states national film registry by the library of congress as being culturally historically or aesthetically significant which i would totally agree with that one's the trickiest legacy to me because historically speaking absolutely like this created an entire genre like we can't argue that Mm -hmm. but i feel like and and this could be just me disagreeing with how the national film registry chooses things but i feel like you should include the best example of the genre not necessarily the start of the genre and i don't think that this is the best you know nature documentary or even disney nature documentary but that that also might just be my bias against this very bug laden movie. I, I I do think for the National Film Registry, I think examples of actual like first or like this sort of set the standard. I, I think is pro- is probably part of their criteria. But I I also get what you're saying. I assume some of these are going to be better than this. Sort of the, the public rating uh, has a seven point four out of ten on IMDb and a seventy three uh, audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. It was reviewed last year in the Desert Sun out of Palm Springs, which said that the living desert still resonates and inspires. The that review brought up a lot of the things that we had already we've already talked about <laughs> in this episode, but it was it was kind of nice that you know somebody out there is still also watching and thinking about the living desert, so it does still continue on in some form. But again, the problematic nature you might be curious about because there are no humans in this movie to represent poorly. However, the accuracy of this movie and the whole project of True Life Adventures in general has been questioned from the start. Like, did they stage any of these things? Did they create fenced-in environments or terrariums to, like, film these animals in? Uh, In 1982, the CBC ran a report... Uh, saying it was mostly staged and the animals were frequently put in mortal danger and often died uh, in the course of filming these documentaries just to get the uh, the right shot. And according to uh, Bill Carrick, who is himself a nature filmmaker, he says that this was, quote, all fake. As someone who also cares about, you know, animal rights and things, that obviously puts a, puts a, tra- puts a tragic light on the making of these and obviously you know we'll keep we'll continue to keep talking about them but you know this was one where i was mostly trying not to think about that that was probably the case while watching it yeah i think that this is one of those situations where the bambi effect comes into play which funnily enough i never actually answered my question earlier of what i thought was the most disney thing here and what i was gonna say was the uh the squirrel skinny 
is very Disney, but the squirrel literally does the thumper, like, foot tap thing, which immediately sent me back to Bambi. But anyway, the Bambi effect, which we talked about in our Bambi podcast, is both endangering cute animals because we think that they're pets and they're not, but also the idea that we don't really care about not cute animals. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we had seen this movie with, like, fluffy rabbits and puppies, we would be horrified. Like, this is setting up (laughs) dogfighting rings. This is, you know, torturing poor animals. But as long as it's mostly insects, we don't seem to care. It's fine that, you know, they get to kill the snakes and the bugs and the beetles and the tarantula, all of whom have been given names and we've been getting attached to over the course of the film. So I think even if it was real, this is a movie about killing animals. Um, And if it wasn't real, then this was the engineering of killing animals. So I think that that's definitely a subject where, to my knowledge, PETA has not commented on this movie, but I could definitely see why they would And had this not been mostly kind of obscure, if not kind of creepy crawly characters, animals, uh, bugs, I definitely think we would have seen more outcry earlier, like we will potentially see with the lemmings and their their mass suicide that didn't actually happen. It makes me more nervous to watch the rest of these, for sure. You know, I knew knew about the lemmings before I, I, I watched this. Um, but, but yeah, I, I'm just trying to accept it as, as face value with saying like, they certainly had different ethical standards and proving out this as a success as a nature documentary paved the way for less intrusive, I'll say, uh, methods of capturing, uh, these animals on film. The other part of its legacy that we should note is that, uh, Roy E. Disney, who's the son of. Uh, who is Walt's nephew, the son of Roy Disney. Roy O. Disney, I think, is his is his middle initial. But Roy E. Disney, this was his first Hollywood job because he was a producer on this film. He was also an assistant director on some, and uh, by the end of the 1960s, will be on uh, serving a very long term on uh, Disney's board of directors. So eventual main character of this show, Roy E. Disney, uh, makes his first appearance here, too. I like that we talk about the movies, we go on our tangents, but there's also just a whole bunch of name dropping where like the first time you hear the name, you're probably like, yeah, okay, they're just listing names. But if you actually do listen to all of these as we research and and watch all of them, you'll notice these names just keep popping up over and over again. And Roy E. Disney is absolutely one of those names that you are going to hear again. I know our wonderful editor, Tessa, uh, who has been more or less watching along with us. She has texted me like, oh, I'm, I'm watching Alice in Wonderland. And like, oh, I'm, I'm seeing all the names in the opening credits. And like, I got really excited when I saw Mary Blair's name. <laughs> and so this is certainly one of, again, one of the intents of this podcast. Uh, Roy, e, pro- Roy E. Disney probably doesn't quite fall under this banner. But wanting to point out, you know, all of the people who were working underneath disney and you know kind of figure out a way to give walt 
not too much credit for things and honoring his legacy. And again, like we've talked a lot about how influential Walt was on many of these movies that we've talked about, including this one, but also highlighting all of the people who actually made Walt's vision come to life. To some extent, we're not necessarily always going like, hail Walt Disney, the, the conquering hero, so much as there's a very different production between a Walt movie and mm-hmm. just a Disney movie. And so when we when we talk about it, it's not necessarily to say that Walt did everything all the time on the movie because he basically never did after Snow White and Fantasia to, to some extent. But it, it definitely is to kind of point out some of the ways that people were working with, around, and in, in at times in spite of Walt Disney, whose name will, of course be remembered forever, confusing everyone in hundreds to thousands of years in the future when they confuse Mickey Mouse and Walt Disney and call him Walt Mouse and think that he was our great god and overlord. And I I hope that at least one episode of this podcast can, can still be around and they can be wildly confused when they're trying to make sense of it. Walt as religion is not the worst comparison I've ever heard. It's not inaccurate. <laughs> anyway, overall, I'll say I enjoyed watching it. Uh, I actually watched it twice for this podcast, in part because it's so short. And I just wanted to make sure I was like familiar enough with all the pieces of it. So I like watched, did some notes, rewatched while I was finishing put the notes, putting my contributions to our notes together. And yeah, I mostly enjoyed it. It's probably not one, again, that I'm I'm going to return to unless I'm like... Guys, you need to see the scorpion square dance. <laughs> but, you know, like, I think I actually enjoyed it a little bit more than I was expecting. Not that my expectations were, were too low, but just not really having actually seen one of these before until I watched the, the Everglades one last week. It was just really cool to get sort of a glimpse into this. And, you know, I'm, I am curious to see if they get better or if it, becomes like a diminishing returns that like oh this one is, was like oh this was like fun and something different for me to watch and by like the fourth one i'm like all right thank god this is the last one <laughs> you know when we talk the animated movies we're always going you know is cinderella truly the new snow white can it can it kind of hit that level and we've been kind of joking kind of serious that like do the live-action films live up to Treasure Island? Because that was actually a pretty good movie. I'm I'm not sure we'll be doing that with this one. I'm not sure this was the slam dunk out of the gate that so many of the others were. But it certainly has its place culturally and historically in how Disney operates and how the documentary genre as a whole, if not specifically the nature documentary, operated then and even into the present. And that's why it's in the National Film Registry. But then it's it's so many bugs. So many bugs. It's a lot of it's a lot it's a lot of bugs. <laughs> it's it's funny because my I, I kept thinking about my mom because she doesn't like bugs or snakes. And so like uh, she would she would get through like if I edited this movie down to just the parts she could watch, it would be like ten minutes. <laughs> yeah, I think I think my mom's probably the same and it would basically be she could see the mud and no, she doesn't like reptiles. I was going to say the squirrels, but the uh, their predators were not 
Uh, great. Uh, she could see the rain. She could see the the <laughs> rainstorm, and then one of one of the things I I actually haven't mentioned. Neither of us have that I liked was seeing the kind of Brian, help me out. What is the film called? What is time the lapse? time lapse? Thank you. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you for reading my mind. You're welcome. Was seeing you know the time lapse of the the rain and then specifically the flowers that were blooming after the rain those were really great moments my mom could watch that but she she probably couldn't watch anything with like anything from the animal kingdom just due to the the bugs reptiles etc going on here so both of our moms avoiding an entire phylum in, in this movie i will say since since you know we're on the shorter side here i will say that when I was in Monument Valley and in Arches National Park, but especially in Monument Valley, we were out doing a short hike and a storm came up very quickly. And it was kind of incredible. It was a little scary because there mm-hmm. was hail. I was worried about lightning because we were in like very open desert with right. not a lot of other carrying the metal water bottles that are all the rage now. Made me a little nervous, but the temperature dropped like 20 degrees in about five minutes. And it was raining, there was hail, there was wind. And then walking after the storm had passed, we actually like huddled under a, a sun shelter with a bunch of Germans, as one does when you're hiking. But walking through the desert after that and seeing the, they call it the wash. And so like a lot of the trails, we either like walk through it or across it. Places where after a rainstorm, water does just naturally flow through the desert, but they're typically dry. Uh, it was actually really cool to see the desert with like a stream of like a fast moving stream of water through it that disappeared after about 15 minutes. I definitely think as much as might be fake in this movie, especially just seeing the desert itself, you know, with or without the animals, there are certainly some things in this film like the rain and the mud and the breaking up of different sections that are things that the vast majority of us don't see unless we actually live in the desert. So if nothing else, if if we throw out all the bits that uh, our mothers don't want to see and all of the bits that they killed or harmed animals for, if nothing else, there were some really cool images of the desert and rain and flowers that admittedly are pretty worthwhile even just on their own. I would agree. I, I love time-lapse nature pho- photography like that. I, I find it super interesting, you know, seeing flowers bloom and stuff. And it, and it's weird because, like, that's the stuff I would have found, like, really boring as a kid. <laughs> and, like, now that's the stuff where I'm like, oh, yeah, give me that. Like, give me another five minutes of flowers opening up in, in, in time-lapse. Yeah, I think that the time-lapse footage is always just something cool to see this change over time in a way that we can't experience it naturally because it can be kind of pushed together so quickly. And it does make such beautiful footage that at least as adults, we can really kind of acknowledge and respect for the beauty it kind of brings to it all. Where we're going from here. Normally, we would be following up with our next Disney movie. In this instance, the next Disney movie is going to be Rob Roy, the Highland Rogue. However, if you've been looking at your calendar, you might notice that next week is Halloween. 
And I have been bugging Ryan since before this podcast started for us to have a Halloween episode. This movie, we have a question of, are these animals really acting like this? And what happens when we disney animals? And next week, we'll have a question of what happens when you take an animal and you make it into a stuffed animal and then you make it into a book and then you make it into a bunch of children's movies and TV shows and make it a beloved icon. And then the copyright runs out and you turn it into a horror movie. And if you, you know, don't know what I'm talking about from that, have you been under a rock this year? We're going to be talking about the most controversial horror movie of 2023, the lowest rated horror movie of 2023, the magnificent, spooky, weird, and possibly childhood destroying Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. I am very much looking forward to it. I have no idea what the quality of this movie is going to be, but from what I've read, not good. And all we can hope is that it will be the fun kind of not good. But you will all find out along with us next week. Meantime, uh, you can always email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, dreammindheart, and on Instagram at dreamwithmindandheart. Once again, just sending out a reminder to all of you, on our social media and through email, you can send us the code words of two of our episodes this season. The code word for this episode was our favorite domestic 50s sitcom slash horror icon, Mrs. Tarantula. Don't forget to send us that code word, send us any thoughts you might have, and we would love to talk with you all more. Thank you again for all listening in. Thank you to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork, Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song, and our editor, Tessa Suela. We have so much to be thankful for, and we really appreciate it. And we are looking forward to getting down to Disney and low-budgetness uh, next week for our Halloween special.